you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. To check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. And so we are continuing on in the series, if you will, <clears throat> in this preparing to build and working through biblical values. Last week we hit on stewardship today. We were to hit on two things at once. It was rest and honor. But then, got into the study of it. Doing both of those at the same time is a really bad idea because there's so much out of both. And so we're just going to focus on rest today and we'll hit honor next week. And some of the irony is, several of you have come up to me and they're like, man, you look really tired. <laughs> I was like, Yes. I have literally changed this sermon three times this week because it is so much. And that's not a, that's not, you feel bad for me kind of thing. This theme and this, uh, this theology of rest is so big and vast. It's a beautiful thing throughout scripture. And just trying to figure out how to really concisely bring it down has been the biggest labor of all. So I have a really good question to ask you here. And it's about dancing. What if I told you that you have potentially been doing the YMCA dance wrong all along? Do you have the picture? Okay. Now this, you can barely see here, but it is the infamous Wayne's World movie. And you have Y and then the M by Garth and then C and then A. Now you're going to think, man, this is really really stupid, and in part, you're correct. However, as you all know, at every like wedding party or you know conga line that you've been a part of, and when this song comes on, everybody's like, I know what I'm doing here. And it almost goes without question. Everybody's got the Y correct, and everybody thinks they got the M correct. And then when they get to the C, you see C's going left and right, and then you see people arguing, no, the sea goes the other way. No, it goes this way. And everybody's frustrated with one another. And so there's a debate about that. But what if I also told you that you were doing the M wrong? Because according to the makers, the village people, the M is not supposed to be done over your head, but in front of your chest. And so all of us have looked like idiots at every wedding party trying to dance the YMCA. Rest is like a dance. Rest, you, okay, good, you've taken that picture away. (laughs) We think we are doing the right thing. We're dancing the right dance. But I don't think it's any difficulty to look at our culture and go, you know what? Rest is kind of hard for us. When we sat at the elder table and we were thinking through biblical values that we really wanted to work through and press upon, it was quickly discussed and decided upon rest is something we really need to press into and work towards. Rest, we often think of mainly in terms of maybe just sleep, vacations, weekend getaways. And we live in a world where rest is seen as something that must be considered around productivity. We rest because it would make us more productive. Or our rest needs to be productive. Here comes Saturday, we're not at our job, now let's get the other things done we need to get done. Or rest can be seen as something that takes away from productivity. On the other end of the spectrum, rest can only come really to the privileged to those who have the means or the money to go on vacations, who don't have to work multiple jobs to make ends meet. No matter what defines you, whether you have wealth or none, or privilege, not privilege, whatever it is you want to say, there is always a reason in our culture for rest to either be a hindrance or completely unattainable. There's always an excuse to not rest. And so I'm hoping today that we can begin to see rest differently. And we begin to dance the dance rightly and correctly. And for any future weddings, I will be judging the YMCA dance moves. 
so you know. But maybe you're just at a loss. You're not really sure what rest is, what to do. You're not even sure if you have been doing it. Look, you're in good company. Not many of us know. Rest, in its basic definition, means to cause to cease. To cause to cease. It has this negative connotation, right? Stop it. (laughs) But it has positive results. This negative connotation with positive results. One put it this way, it is the way of man that is characterized by a superior encroachment. The way of man characterized by a superior encroachment. Meaning this, let me bring it down. God is the superior encroachment. He is the one who intrudes upon the way of man and brings man rest. God comes in and He corrects our dance. He corrects our way of living, our way of being. He calls us to grab a hold of biblical rest by the hand and allows it all of its moves, its rhythms, its steps, its music to then encroach upon every facet of who we are and what we do both in body, mind, and soul affecting us even down to our emotions and our relational being. One book I want to recommend to you is was recommended to me this last week, Restoring the Sabbath. I was able to make about three quarters of the way through it this week. Exceptional read by Eric Summerers, Restoring the Sabbath. You can even get it on audiobook. He helps illustrate this rhythm by way of liturgy. Not only is rest an individual way of life that is encroached upon by God, but it is a a way of the life of the church, of a community. The community is supposed to be at rest. And liturgy, really, we, we talk about when we come into church that we have a liturgical flow of doing worship. We start in a call to worship in prayer. We have music. We have the reading of Scripture. We have preaching. We have the Lord's Supper. And liturgy, at a more finer-tuned definition, really is this bridge building. This idea that we are going from one place to another. We are going, when we come in on Sunday morning, from wherever we are, into this corporate place of worship together as the church body. And so when we function in this sort of structure or liturgy, even outside of this gathering, we are all dancing the same dance. We're in a rhythm of worship that is not only glorifying to God, but it is restful to both our bodies and our souls. So biblical rest is a liturgy. It is a dance that goes into all of life and is shared by all who are in Christ. And rest throughout the Bible we can see is choreographed in really kind of two primary ways. And really you'll hear of rest being intertwined or interchanged with the word Sabbath as well. But here are the two ways. One is the Sabbath rest. That is, God created six days, and on the seventh day, He rested. This is a rest from routine labor. Okay? This is that physical external rest. The second one is the promise of rest. So you have Sabbath rest and the promise of rest. And this promise of rest is from the wandering or wandering and journeying or enemy threat. This wandering as exiles, this journeying in the wilderness, this constant threat of foreign enemies, there is a promise of rest. This often for us becomes the more internal or spiritual aspect of rest that you see in Scripture. The Old Testament and New Testament grabs those two themes really tightly and hones in, and especially in the New Testament, we see that in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, and then also, as we read, Matthew chapter 11. Today, we're going to dabble in a few different texts here, so I don't have just one passage for us to rise and and listen to the reading, but we're going to work through 
a few of them, or four of them, not in their entirety. It's going to be about a 30,000 foot flight in this. But Genesis chapter 2, Psalm 95, Hebrews 3 and 4, Matthew 11. But for the sake of you following me, if you kind of have a, a, a thumb in Hebrews 4 and another in Matthew 11, those will be the two places that we can really kind of cling to this morning and stick together. So let's just get into it. So I want to do this by way of trying to retell the story. Retell the story. I don't know what to do. Am I moving, am I moving too far? I need to stop moving. Retell the story that Scripture tells. It's the bigger story, the meta-narrative. And so if we were to jump back to Genesis, this is where the story begins. I'm going to take this part from Genesis 2. Genesis 2 kind of recaps what was mentioned in Genesis 1 in a little bit more of an artistic way of speaking. Genesis 2.5 says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had, God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Down to 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. We recall the story of creation, basically out of nothing, ex nihilio, right? Out of nothingness, God made all things. God wasn't bored, He wasn't tired, He wasn't lonely. He created, He just spoke into being, and there was the Son. There was the the earth, the expanse of the sky, the waters being separated, the lesser light, all of these things, plants, vegetation, animals, God spoke these all into being and He did it in the course of six days. He did this. God was at work. He was at work. Creating life and then creating life with His creation. He would not only speak things into existence, but then He would grow plants from the very soil that He created using the very water that He spoke into existence by also the sunlight that He put at the center of our solar system. God creating and creating with His creation. And then God made man. The pinnacle of His creation. The most beautiful piece of His creation. And He made him, Genesis 1 says, in His image and in His likeness. Meaning that His people, man and woman, Adam and Eve, would be like Him, able to relate to Him, able to relate to others. So God gave this man breath. And He came to life. He gave him eyes to see the pleasantry of His trees and that the fruit that these trees bore were good. He gave him senses, ability to conceive and understand what was going on around him. He gave him an appetite to eat the food that would ultimately be good for his body. He gave him a thirst that would be quenched by the four rivers or the falling rains. He gave him, and we didn't read this, but he gave him rich metals and precious stones to behold to use. God did this. And where did God place man? He placed him in the garden. He placed him in Eden. To do what? To work and to keep it. 
mention this right away because often work becomes the culprit. Work is the enemy. Work is the sin. That's how we often think about things. But work was actually something that was pre-fall. That was meant to be good. That was holy. That was right. Meant to be enjoyed. So Adam and Eve, Adam would be like God working the garden, tending to it, taking seed, planting it in, in the dirt, watering it with the waters of the rivers or the rains of the skies, and then watching it grow and then plucking its fruit. And like God, Adam and Eve, were not to hoard this wonderful glory and this beautiful creation, but instead they were to multiply. They were to multiply themselves like God created, so Adam and Eve create. And as they create and have children, the goal and the glory, or the, the goal here is that the glory of God would then be carried on to another generation. There's not enough people on the planet to give God his due glory. You can never have enough. And there would ultimately come a time to eat of the tree of life and perhaps of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, but the time was not yet. God said, do not eat of it. If you do, you will die. And so then after six days, this happens. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished His work that He had done and He rested on the seventh day from all His work that He had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all His work that He had done in creation. God fully, completely finished all of His work. He was done by day six. And on day seven, He rested. This is God's rest. And rest from what? Is God tired? Is He weary? Is He fatigued from all this work? No. Not at all. God never tires. He never grows weary. He never has to sleep. Rather, this rest is not a rest to recharge and get back at at it next week because I didn't get the job done, but this is a rest of enjoyment. Look what I've made. This is good. Adam, Eve, look at this. This is good. Enjoy it. This rest is not time spent, but this is sanctified time. God's not busying up the Sabbath with doing more things. In fact, this time, this Sabbath, is sanctified. It is holy. And this rest of God would be for all of His creation, especially Adam and Eve. As they would work and keep the garden, they would stop on the seventh, seventh day to enjoy God and His creation. It kept things real. Adam and Eve, you are not God. You are made in His image and His likeness, but you are not God. You may be planting the seed in the ground, but you are not the one who causes it to grow. It still reminds Adam and Eve you have to go to sleep. In fact, Adam, you didn't even create your wife. I had to put you to sleep and then created your wife. There's nothing in you that is making this happen. You get to work the ground and enjoy my creation and enjoy me. This is not enslavement. This is not torture. This is life-giving work and breath. And so what God is calling His creation to do on that seventh day is to slow down. Slow down. Don't be busied. Don't be in a hurry. Pay attention. It's like the difference between driving through the neighborhood and taking a walk through a neighborhood. When you drive through the neighborhood, you're just kind of catching things as you go. Try not to hit children, yelling at the children in the car. But walking through the neighborhood, it takes a while to get past each house. You begin to notice the yards. You begin to notice people. You begin to notice the details of the architecture 
around. You begin to notice the trees, the type of trees, the smell of trees, the blades of grass, everything that comes with it. This is what the Sabbath rest is. Slow down and take in your God. But most importantly, in all of this, this is God's rest. It's not your rest. You're not entitled to this rest. This is God's rest. God established this rest. It is set by God and God's rest is made to be by the standard of God. Meaning there is no other standard of rest except by God. All other standards are counterfeit. And the second thing to remember is that God has finished working. And He has been resting ever since. And even from His posture of rest, He's accomplishing salvation. And then the tragic. Adam and Eve disobey. They eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And their disobedience took them from a work, from a life, a relationship that was good and restful to a place of unrest and chaos. Misery, fatigue, exhaustion. And then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, meaning, lest he reach out his hand while he's in a state of sin and eat from the tree of life and live forever in that state of sin, let's do something about it. Verse 23, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. At the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So what was lost was not God's rest, but instead, man's ability to be in that rest. And so what we did was we left the garden and we replaced God's rest with counterfeits. God sent Adam and Eve out of the garden protecting His rest. And ultimately protecting Adam and Eve from entering into an eternal state of unrest and curse and condemnation. And so here's the picture. The rest still stands. It's still here. But there's only one way in. God has created rest and He has created us to be in that rest with Him. But as it would happen, we have rebelled against Him and we have created counterfeit rest. So church, what do you define as rest? And whatever you define as rest, ask yourself the follow-up question. Does God agree with you? However it is you define rest, does God go, yep, I agree with that. And what does a counterfeit look like? Well, counterfeit looks like the original, but it's not. It's made from different material, right? Different craftsmanship, different value altogether. And so really, we come up with counterfeit work. Work in the garden prior to the fall was restful, but now we come up with a counterfeit form of work. We make work everything. It is all that we are. It is our identity. It is wrapped up in our job, our success, our careers. Work ultimately defines our happiness, our value, our worth, our identity. Whereas work in the garden was ultimately to turn back and enjoy God, now it is to turn back and enjoy me. The counterfeit. Now we have counterfeit relationships. In the garden, our relationship with God and one another was a form of rest. But now, we forge relationships based off of personal wants and things that satisfy us. And so we forge God to ultimately be the type of God that loves our counterfeits. God, You would want me happy, wouldn't You? So You would allow me to live this sort of way 
We have ultimately a counterfeit rest. We go out on the weekend to have fun, to live life to the fullest. Right? Don't waste any other time. We gotta go. But then we come back Monday completely hungover and fatigued and worn out. There's no rest. We were spending the time trying to do everything we can to squeeze every ounce we could out of it before we kicked the bucket. Our time is not sanctified. It's just spent. That's counterfeit. And how can you spot if you're living with counterfeit rest? Maybe consider this. If your job was taken away, what would happen to you? Would you lose it? Would your whole identity crumble to pieces? Your value, your worth as a person just be shattered? What if your friends stopped hanging out with you? Is it all over? The friends that you had, the relationships that you had, all of it was bound up in them? Would you lose rest if you found out that your God actually wants to relate to you on His terms and not yours? What if your weekend or week-long vacations were taken from you? What if your job said, no more? Does that mean you no longer have the ability to rest? What about that? What if, what if, God forbid, you go out of this place and are hurt physically in some way to where you're in a wheelchair for the rest of your life or paralyzed or blind or whatever it is and you can no longer take nice walks in the neighborhood, run to the mountains and enjoy, or run to the beaches, but you're locked down because you're physically incapable, what then is your rest done for? Look, God was gracious to clothe Adam and Eve. He was gracious to protect them from the tree. And so if the cherubim, these flaming swords, are the gatekeepers to God's eternal rest, then my question is, what is the key to regaining entry? What is the key to regain entry back into the garden? Think of it this way. Is what you define as rest something that would grant you access back to that heavily guarded garden? Hebrews 3 and 4 helps break this down a little bit for us. Helps break down that guarded rest. If you were to be in Hebrews chapter 3, and I won't be reading all of these verses, but 7 through 11 says this. Let me read 1 through 11, excuse me. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of much more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. Meaning, Moses lived a life that ultimately was pointing to something later on. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house if if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Now here's where I want you to pay attention. Verse 7-11. through Therefore, the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear His voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall not enter my rest. Citing Psalm 95, a psalm of David. 
And so here is again this visual picture of the heavily guarded rest of God. God's people coming out of Egypt, coming into the wilderness, were a disobedient people, constantly rejecting God, rejecting the ways of God, which is why God said, they shall not enter My rest. This is the point that Israel is saying, hey, we're your people. We came out of Egypt. We're with you right here. Can't we get back into the garden? And God is saying, no. Not even that you're, you are my chosen people do you just get to easily come back into the garden. You are disobeying me. You shall not enter my rest. And that is a complete rejection of God. It's not saying if you mess up here or there that you can't enter into the rest of God. What we're talking about here is a complete rejection of God. But in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Therefore, while the promise of entering His rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. The author of Hebrews is warning the new baby church that they need not to reject or disobey their God. They need to receive Christ. They need to believe Him. They need to obey Him. Listen to the words. The promise of entering His rest still stands. Going back again to the garden, His rest has been protected and He's still protecting it. And He's saying, come enter into this rest. And there's a way to get into this rest. And that way still stands. But the people of God are missing it somewhere. They're missing it. But the author here wants to make that ultimately clear. And he does this. The only way is by the fulfillment as seen when we get to jumping back, chapter 3, verse 14, it is fulfilled in Christ. For we have come to share in Christ, it says in 3.14. Belief and obedience in Christ is the key to rest. To entering into that rest. And so he says in chapter 4, verses 2-10, through 10, For good news came to us just as it did to them. He's speaking to the New Testament church. Just as the good news came to us, so it did to all those in the Old Testament. Just as it came to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As He has said, as I swore in My wrath, they shall not enter My rest. Although His works were finished from the foundation of the world, verse 4, for He has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all His works. And again, in this passage, He said, they shall not enter My rest. Six, since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, He appoints a certain day Today, saying through David, so long afterward, so long after the fact, David's psalm comes after Moses, comes after Joshua, comes after these things. And yet, David's words are still applicable. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua, who lived before David, had given them rest, when they came into the promised land, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, verse 9, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Faith in Christ, faith in God, is what unites us is what brings us to God's eternal rest, faith through the ages. The faith of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the faith of Joseph, 
The faith of Moses, the faith of Joshua, the faith of David, the faith of the prophets are all pointing to the same assurance, the same hope, Christ. In Hebrews 11, we won't read that, but Hebrews 11 points out that's the trajectory of the life of Moses, Joshua, and David. Read it this afternoon, verses 23 to 34 in chapter 11. Their entire life was looking forward to Christ. And so that means the good news of rest had come to the men and women in the Old Testament just as it has come to us in the New. And so, just as David wrote in his time, so now the author of Hebrews is taking that same psalm of David as though David were standing before these new Christians, this new church, and saying, today, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Enter into His rest. Now how do you know? What is the fruit, the author is saying, what is the fruit of the one who has entered into the rest of Christ? Verse 10, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God rested from his. There's an actual tangible rest that is taking place. You are honoring that rest. And this is more specifically speaking of the seventh day, the Sabbath, but there is a holistic picture here. In verse 11, this is the plea. Therefore, let us strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. Let us strive. We are called to strive. Striving means to do something with intense effort or motivation. To do something with intense effort or motivation. The author is not saying do everything you can to save yourself. God won't let you into His rest unless He sees you working hard enough and doing enough things. That's not what He's saying. What He's saying is that salvation comes through Christ alone and with the power of the Spirit, I'm adding these, by the way, by the power of the Spirit, we strive to enter into that rest that God has provided through His Son, Jesus Christ. It's just like we see elsewhere in the New Testament where Paul tells us to take off the flesh and to put on the ways of Christ. We don't just, we're not inactive Christians not doing anything. We do something. And even rest is something that we must strive towards. But not in our own power. Not in our own strength. So remember, God's rest is His rest. And God is gracious to invite us into it. There's no room for counterfeits. God will not allow counterfeits. Rest is entered by faith. Consider Moses. Hebrews 11 tells us that Moses considered Christ of greater wealth than the, uh, uh, the reproach of Egypt. He considered those things. And Moses had taskmasters. Moses lived in the wilderness. They had no roots, if you will. They were on the go. Moses never got to enter into the promised land. And yet, he had rest. Joshua considered Christ over the land. Joshua entered into the land, but it wasn't just an easy cakewalk. He entered into the land and there was conquest. There was war. There was constant enemies. And at the same time, he was receiving a land with homes that he didn't have to build. Vineyards he didn't have to plant. A land flowing with milk and honey. But he never saw the people of Israel become a united kingdom. David considered Christ over his rule. He was... God's, or he was God's anointed. But he also had a host of enemies. The Psalms are flooded with this. They're just wrestling through the fact that he feels just alone in terms of his 
relationship to the people around him, but finding that God is enough for him. And God never saw the temple. He never saw it. And so we must understand that we are not unique in the struggles of life or the things that happen around us. There are taskmasters, right? There are good things that happen. There are bad things that happen. But regardless of it, and even if we don't see Jesus come back this side of heaven, it doesn't mean we can't attain rest right now. And so we are to strive to enter that rest. With faith-based intense effort and motivation, we are to look out for these things. To look out for the taskmasters. We are to look out for the destructive wisdom of this age. We are to look out for those things. Because those things ultimately are designed to rob us of true rest and give us something counterfeit. The taskmaster says, why are you stopping? We've got more to do. There's more to be done. Don't you understand? The clock is still ticking. You're just sitting around waiting. Why are you waiting? Get up and go. Life is too short. Man, you're just living under the cracking of that whip. Enemies that surround us may say, you know, look, while you're taking the weekend off, I'm at work making money. I'm just making money all the time. And look at you, not making money. Not going anywhere. The culture of the age says, hey, look, don't waste your time looking up. Look down. See what I have to provide for you. Get lost in this other world that is better than the world around you. This cyberverse, if you will. Get lost in binge watching. Get lost in social media. Hey, you know what? You can create your own world. Just take a bunch of pictures and frame it however you want. Have a big smile for like a half second. Take the picture and then caption it with best day ever. And nobody knows. But everyone thinks that's what it is. But you can live in that false reality saying, oh, this is the rest I'm looking for. The land of opportunity says, look at this sweet landscape. And all the opportunity you have to make money, to live that life. Don't waste time not seizing that opportunity. Go get it right now. Like everybody feels that pressure in the housing market. Sorry to all the realtors out there who are banking off of this right now. But it's like that's the pressure we feel. It's like we got to seize this opportunity, make some money right now. But man, that could be draining. We have to be intensely focused on Christ alone And this rest is something that we're commanded to enter. We're commanded to. It's the only way we can get past the cherubim and the flaming sword that is protecting God's rest. By faith in Christ. And since entering His rest is done by faith in Jesus, then how does Jesus lead us to live in that rest? This is what we read in Matthew 11 earlier especially verses 20-24, through 24, Jesus is rebuking the evildoers of the age. Woe to you! Woe to you! And these evildoers are just like the generations that lived disobediently and never entered into the rest of God. Even in the time of Christ, there's the same pattern of disobedience and lack of godly rest. However, Jesus recognized before Him There are those who would enter into His rest. And they are not who the rulers and the religious authorities of the day would have guessed. And Jesus says, I thank You, Father, Matthew 11.25, Lord of heaven and earth, that You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was Your gracious will. That means whatever Jesus is about to say next is wrapped up in the grace of God. And what is that grace? 
In verse 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. What this is saying is that you and I, we know Christ because Christ is allowing us to know Him and because the Father has chosen to reveal the Son to us. There's this harmony, this work that is happening between the Father and the Son for them to show us Christ alone. Meaning, there's nothing that we can do to get to the Father. There's nothing that we can do to understand rest on our own, to understand salvation on our own. It is something that the Father has given to us through Christ. That's why it's called grace. It is a gift. We didn't earn it. It was just given to us. And so we have to recognize that, that we can sit here and actually contemplate the rest of God because God has given us eyes to actually contemplate it. Whereas the world is completely and strictly blinded to it. That should melt us a little bit on the inside. And so he says, 28, Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is the rest of God. Jesus was there in creation. We know this. Hebrews 1, Colossians 1 makes it very clear that through Christ all things were created. He is the one who is there when God said, let us make man in our image. He was there. He is the God. He is God. And it is His rest that was established in the garden. Along with the Father. Along with the Spirit. Jesus, therefore, is the key to re-entry into the garden. No one else, nothing else, no other way. And listen, come to me. This is an invitation. This isn't, hey, before you come to me, do something. That's an invitation. Jesus is not being a taskmaster here. He's not cracking a whip. He says, come to me, all of you who have been under the whip, who are heavy laden, who are laboring, who are without rest, I will give you rest. 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We have about a thousand of these books. Dane Ortland wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly. You should go get one because we bought a lot. But what he says about the heart of Christ in this verse is that it is communing to us Christ's very own heart. This is who he is tender, open, welcoming, accommodating, understanding. Willing. He goes on, if we are asked to say only one thing about who Jesus is, we would be honoring Jesus' own teaching if our answer is gentle and lowly. The imagery here in the garden when God sends out Adam and Eve is very strong. It's powerful. It's intimidating. The cherubim, the flaming swords. But the picture here is gentle. It's caring. But don't misunderstand. It doesn't mean that Jesus is safe. You reject Him, there is a flaming sword that is coming your way for all eternity. But understand, God is, Jesus is, love. He is gentle. He is compassionate. He is lowly. He will not turn a blind eye to sin. Don't mistake His gentleness for weakness. But He is calling us into Himself. Which is why he would even have the audacity to come down and be a person. To be like us in every single way. Even being tempted. Yet he did not sin. 
this yoke and burden referring to really the teaching and the works of Christ. A yoke was something you'd put over oxen. You'd put a couple oxen together, put the yoke over them, and they would pull the plow or pull the wagon. Jesus is saying, let me get yoked up with you. Not cheesy like I'm your co-pilot kind of thing, but almost. But he's saying, I'm going to carry that yoke. My burden is light. My teachings are easy. And what does he mean by that? Because the burden of the law was pounding the people down. I can't keep the law. I can't uphold the law in any way. And Jesus is saying, I have come to fulfill all of the law. Obey Me because I fulfill it all. That's how the burden is light. That's how the yoke is easy. You walk by My righteousness which I have given to you. And what is that? That's rest. He says, He's not saying you stop working, you stop doing things. He's not saying in the Christian life you just don't do anything anymore. No, there is labor. There's being yoked up. But it's not sinful labor. It's not exhausting labor. It is restful labor. Just like the work and the labor in the garden prior to the fall. (coughs) So Jesus gives rest to our souls to our body, our spirit. He gives rest in His teachings, His commands. A counterfeit rest says, I can get you to the Father. Follow Me. That way leads to enslavement. Just passing the time with no real rest for your body and soul. Work more. Go more places. Make more money. Prove to the world that you're something. Go faster, hurry. You're wasting time. Get busy, busy, busy. You don't have time to stop. Yes, you need to sleep because granted, if you don't sleep, you'll die. But only sleep so you don't die so that you can have enough energy to get up and do more and be productive. Rest sanctified says only Jesus can get you to the Father. Follow Him. If we follow Jesus, where do you think He'll take us? He'll take us back to the garden. To that place of eternal rest. He holds the keys. He has the access. Leave the taskmasters behind. Leave the unrest behind. Leave the chaos behind. And enter into this rest with me. And so when we enter into that rest with Jesus, we have sanctified work. Our jobs have never been the problem. (laughs) The number of hours we work each week has never been the problem. It could be to some degree. Your boss is not the problem. The problem has been not seeing that your work is good, is right, is necessary. What if your said job... could be instead a great source of joy as though you're doing it for the Lord and not working for men. Because our jobs are set in place for the purpose of enjoying God. Just like working the garden. Keeping the soil. Work isn't the problem. How we work is the problem. You can allow the curse of the ground to cause you to toil and grow weary in your body and soul. Or you can embrace that you no longer live under the curse, but under grace. The impacts of the fallen world are around you and they do impact your job, but you can enter God's rest while you're working in a fallen world. And the fruit that will be bore from it is life-giving, not life-taking because here's the reality if you can't find rest while you're working you won't find rest on the weekend sanctified relationship but our relationships are to be a source of rest our relationship with God was once hostile but now it's made right through Christ our relationship with one another is now made right through Christ so then we are to 
not be one with the world, but be one with God and be one with the church. Relationships are to be restful and life-giving. This is why it says in Hebrews 4.13 and 14, but exhort one another as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is the call, the action of sanctified relationships. That we constantly share Christ with one another. That we constantly go to Him. That we constantly repent of sin. That we are constantly being sanctified by His Word. If you share in the relationships of the world, you'll be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Believing you're doing just fine. Everything's good. Because the world will be like, hey, you're good. It's okay. But of course, when the world is bored with you and moves on, then all you're left with is just a world of hurt and chaos. The church holds the keys. The keys to rest in Christ. She will guide you to the ways of godliness, to the garden, to the cool of the day with the Lord. We are to have sanctified rest. The seventh day was a day to stop working and to enjoy God. We need to have a day where we stop working. And not to just spend the time doing something else, but to actually embrace sanctified time. Stop and pay attention. To watch the clouds move across the sky. To hear the birds sing. To listen to your spouse. To pay attention to how God has been washing him or her with His Word. To see how your children are growing. To see how the grass is growing. And you not having to mow it because God says, it's okay, you don't have to do it today. (laughs) But just paying attention. Not worshiping the creation, but the Creator. Being in awe of Him. We need to rest our bodies. God doesn't have to rest. We do. If we don't rest or sleep, we die. We've got to slow down and pay attention. And when we stop, what we're telling ourselves, husbands, wives, and what we're telling each other, and parents, what we're telling our kids when we rest this way, is that God is in control. We don't have to just keep going. The world will keep doing what it does in spite of us. God's will is going to be accomplished with or without us. Sabbath rest is for recreating, not creating. Sabbath rest is for recreating, not creating. You and I are being restored. That's what we need. We need rest so that our bodies can be recreated and energized and brought to life again. It's the story of creation, right? God is the one who creates. We are being recreated. And Jesus is slowly recreating us into His image. And one day, He'll bring us back to the garden. And so this is the already but not yet. We already rest with Him, but not yet are we resting with Him in perfect glory. All in all, rest is a dance. It is a liturgy a rhythm of life. And many of us have been dancing a dance of rest, but not necessarily the dance that God has put in place. We're quick to put up counterfeit forms of rest with a worldly liturgy and dance. Eric Summerer said it well, Sabbath is an orientation, a way of seeing and knowing. Sabbath is mortar in the joints. Rest is both time on the calendar and a disposition of the heart. Sabbath is not one more thing to do. That's how the world sees things. Rest is the imposition, the problem, the distraction, the one more thing you got to do. But God invites you and me into an eternal liturgy and dance of rest. A rest that is found only in Jesus. A rest that sanctifies and restores the very way that we work, the very way that we relate to Him and to one another, the very way that we stop and rest, the very way that we play. This dance of rest also sanctifies our hope. 
reminding us of the eternal rest to come, the rest that David to this day points to, and the very rest that will be called upon by the generations to come. And that is today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. Enter into His rest.